Now, if you turn with me uh, to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from Genesis chapter 15, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 21. It's a very famous passage if you've been in the church, um, but it can also be a confusing and, and often disturbing passage as well, which is why we're, we're looking at it today. Verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And this is God's word. We're beginning a, a kind of mini-series in the Old Testament while still keeping the same theme of how God takes confusing, difficult, broken situations in our lives to demonstrate his wisdom and the, and the redeeming power and grace of God, not despite our brokenness, but through our brokenness. And we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We were making a lot of headway as we were making our way through the Old Testament. But we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis for this mini-series. And we're going to begin with Abram again. Abraham. Who was he? I'm going to give you a very, very brief uh, summary again. God appeared to Abram, and he promised to redeem the world through one of Abram's descendants. So in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to get out. I want, to, I want you to leave this country. In ancient times, you have to understand that to leave your people, I mean, people, your family, your culture, that was your life in the ancient times. You never left home. But God says, leave. To where? He says, trust me. In Genesis chapter 12 to 13, Abraham arrives at Canaan and God says, this is your land. I want you to stay here. Why here? I mean, just over there, it seems like there's more options. God says, trust me. 
Later in Genesis chapter 17 to Abraham, God says, I'm going to promise you a son. What? Abram is around 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, is around 90 years old. God says, wait, well, how long? Trust me. Genesis chapter 22, Abram has a son. God says, now I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice your son. Why? I want you to trust me. You see, sometimes life is a series of cycles of leaving and staying and waiting and sacrificing. Leave, stay, wait, or sacrifice, surrender. That's what it means to trust God. And in each of these cases, Abram passes. Now, how did he do that? I mean, how would we pass? The text says, Abram believed by faith. That's what it means to trust in God's promise. Well, how can we trust? And that's what we're going to go into today. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, as disturbing as it may seem at first. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. We're going to look at two things. One, Abram's barriers of trusting God. Uh, the barriers for trusting God to God's faithfulness in his response. Abram's barriers and trusting God, which essentially becomes our barriers. It's the same barriers. And then secondly, God's response, his faithfulness. First, we're going to look at Abram's barriers. Just one chapter prior, Abram's nephew, Lot, is rescued from these tribal lords. It was a really, really violent time in that area, in that, in that period of time. There are lots of reasons to be afraid. And so it's very special that in that context, in chapter 15 now, as we just read, God then assures Abram and he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Now, there are always two barriers in trusting anyone, and certainly two barriers in trusting God. It's the same two barriers. God says, I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, I'm good for it. I am for you. But then Abram responds in verse two, but how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure? Abram's got doubts. He's got anxiety. He's got questions. I mean, and the question is what? How do I know that you will pull through for me? I mean, you promised me a son. I still don't have a son. And so the first problem, the first barrier in trusting God is what? Will he pull through? In verses four to six, God answers. He says, well, I will give you a son. You're going to have many children. Essentially, that's what he's saying. And God reminds Abram of the covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a very special agreement where you bind your life where you bind your love and you bind your life as a result. In other words, in a covenant, you're in a covenant because you love the person. So in a covenant, because of your love for that person, you're choosing to bind your life with their life. So whatever happens to them, essentially it's happening to you. Whatever success they have, that means it's, it's your success. Or more importantly, whatever success you have transfers to them. And whatever pain they experience becomes your pain. Whatever hurt they experience becomes your hurt. Whatever loss they experience becomes your loss. That's a covenant. You're taking on the responsibility of another person in their life. And so whatever success you gain, it becomes them, theirs. You're saying no matter what, 
I'm going to have you advance, even if it's at my cost. I'm going to put my name on the line. I'm going to put my credibility on, my li- on the line. I'm going to put my life on the line. And in verse 6, it says, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited to him. It was transferred to him as righteousness. Another word for saying that is it was imputed to him. But Abram doubts. Abram doubts. God promises. And then Abram trusts. Whenever you have doubts and then the person promises, makes promises, and then you trust what's happening there, you're building a relationship. But it doesn't always take away your doubts. It very rarely takes away your doubts in and of itself, just by themselves, right? Abram's still got doubts. He's got difficulties in those doubts. They're different doubts. In verse seven, God says, I'm gonna also give you this land. In other words, Now you're going to have a home. You've been traveling. You've been wandering. You've been alien and a stranger. Everywhere you've been, I'm going to give you a home. You're going to have land. And land in those ancient times, it was synonymous with wealth. So you're going to have great wealth. But in verse 8, Abram says, well, how do I know that I can do this? In other words, how do I know that I can pull through? This is the second barrier of trusting anyone. Verse 1 to 6, how do I know that you, how do I know that you, God, will pull through? In verse 7 to 8, how do I know that I'll pull through? How do I know that I can be faithful? How do I know that I'm going to be good for it? Those are the two foundational barriers of trust in any relationship, but especially in our relationship with God. What do you learn from that? One, God reasons with you. If you look at this, God is reasoning with Abraham. He reasons with Abraham through his word, through his promises. God speaks to Abraham through his word, and Abraham responds. We call that prayer. So Abraham's hearing the word, and he responds with prayer. God speaks to you through his word, through the Bible, through his promises. Abraham questions. Abraham doubts God, and God answers. God comforts Abraham, how? Through his word. And he says, I am the Lord, and I promise this. And Abraham essentially is saying, but I have doubts about you. In fact, I have doubts about me. That's what he says. And what does God do? Then forget it. This thing's, the deal is off? No, that's not what he says. God is open to your doubts. He's open to your skepticism. I mean, Abram, he's got the audacity to question God. And yet God is patient. He never asks, he never says to Abram, well, who are you to question me? I mean, I should be the one questioning you. He doesn't say that. Abram is blind. He doesn't see ahead. And he's afraid. It makes him afraid. So God gives him clarity. That's what he needs. God demonstrates his faithfulness. That's what he needs. That's the heart of God. It's a heart of God to hear your doubts, to hear your fears, and to comfort you with his word, and to reason with you. So on one hand, there's a tremendous amount of freedom to doubt. On the other hand, God says, but I'm not going to leave you alone in your doubts. I'm not going to, I'm going to challenge you to work out your doubts. Now, it's very important because today, on one hand, we have a traditional culture that looks down on skeptics, that looks down on doubters. We kind of turn our nose against people who doubt. We say, don't question things, just believe it. That's what we say. And that leads to what? An increase in skepticism. But on the other hand, we have a postmodern culture that holds questions and skeptics as a virtue, skepticism as a virtue. So whether you are you're coming from a traditional background, a churched background, or a postmodern background, and an irreligious background, there's an increase in abundance of skepticism everywhere. Both cultures create doubters. Both cultures create skeptics. But here, God says what? It's safe to doubt. But work it out. 
It's safe to doubt, but you need to work out your doubts. Don't just stay there. Remember the Apostle Thomas? I mean, before, the apost- before he became the Apostle Thomas, he was doubting Thomas. After the news of Jesus' resurrection, Thomas doubted. And he had, in fact, he kind of says that he's very, very uh, uh, aggressive. He says, you know, unless I see him, unless I touch his scars, I will not believe. But then Jesus appears. And what does Jesus do? Does he smite Thomas? Does he say, you know, all of you, you're so faithful, but you, you're the doubter. That's not what he does, right? What does he do? He appeals to Thomas. He reasons with Thomas. He's gentle with Thomas. He says, Thomas, touch. The text says Thomas never even got to that point. He fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. If you look at the humility of Jesus and the patience of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus, the comfort of Jesus, the the counsel of Jesus, that's God's word speaking to his people. But remember, then Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting. Now you can stop doubting. Work out the barriers to faith in Christ. Don't just stay there. Now, the second point here is about God's faithfulness. What does God do in response to Abram? How does he answer Abram? Abram says in verses 1 to 8, it's really hard to trust you. God, it's really hard to trust you. It's really hard to trust myself. And God responds in verse 9. He says, get these animals. Now, this part's weird. Abram takes these animals and the text says that he cuts them in half from head to toe and he arranges them opposite each other. He's essentially creating like an aisle that you can walk through. Now, we look at that and we say, that's really weird. It's bloody. It's gross. What's going on? But Abram was not confused. He immediately knew what was going on when God was asking him to do this. Why? Because Abram was part of a merchant culture in the ancient times. And because of his culture and because of his career, he knew exactly what God was doing uh, when he was asking him to bring these animals together. What God was doing was entering into a covenant with Abram. This is what you call, this, this kind of procedure was called a covenant ratification ceremony. What is that? Today, in a, we live in a literate culture. So if you've ever signed a contract, maybe for work, or if you've ever signed a lease for an apartment, or if you ever signed, purchased a car or, or purchased a home, whenever you get married, you write these things down. You have these things written down. There are stipulations and what, what each party, what each side is promising to do in sickness or in health, for richer, for poorer, for better or for worse. Maybe it's a lease payment where something is owed at a certain date in a month and it has to be paid before that date for a series of, of a period of time. And there are stipulations to the contract. There are also consequences of what happens if you violate that contract. And at the end, there are these lines, and you sign your name on that line. You're putting your name on the line. You're putting your credibility on the line. You're putting your credit on the line, literally. That's how you keep each other accountable. Both parties sign before witnesses. Depending on the magnitude of the commitment, the magnitude of ceremony, is, it's, it's a much larger ceremony. That's what ratifies the covenant. It's binding. What you're saying is, I promise to be faithful. Otherwise, I'm willing to accept disastrous consequences. But that's not how it was in ancient times. 
In ancient times, it was an oral culture. You spoke contracts and you acted out the consequences so that it's infused in your brain and in your heart. You remember what you're owning. Your word was binding. And so you reenacted uh, the consequences to make very, very clear what each side, what each party is owing, what each party is owning. Now, there's a man by the name of George Mendenhall. He was a former professor of the University of Michigan, but he was an expert in ancient Near Eastern contracts. And he wrote a very important book, a very boring book, but a very important book. It's called The Law and the Covenant in Israel and Ancient, and the ancient Near East. And, and Mendenhall, he saw, he knew something interesting. He saw the language in biblical passages, like the one we just read today, like Genesis 15, this, this language uh, in, in these biblical passages between God and Abraham, for instance. And he saw that they were similar to the language between God and Moses at Mount Sinai when God was handing down the Ten Commandments. He, he saw that the structure of the conversation and the dialogue were almost parallel to each other, very, very similar. And then he took ancient Near Eastern contracts and he says, actually, if you take these ancient Near Eastern contracts and put them side by side to God's language towards Abram and God's language towards Moses, they're almost exact in structure. It's all covenantal language. In other words, in Abram's time, when you made a covenant, like Abram, what you would do is you would take these animals, you would cut these animals in half from head to toe, and you arrange the halves to form an aisle. And both parties would make promises, would recite what each party would owe, and they would walk through in between the halves, and he recited the stipulations of the covenant and the consequences of breaking the covenant. What were they doing? They were reenacting what would happen if you would break it or violate it. What they're saying is this, if I break my promise, if I break my relationship with you, if I break the covenant, may I become like these animals. May I be torn to pieces. May blood be spilled. May my life be cut off. It was covenantal language. It's harsh language. It's disturbing language. Because that's why when you break a covenant, it's meant to be disastrous. The consequences are disastrous. So Abraham knew exactly what God was asking him to set up that he was setting up a covenant ratification ceremony so that Abram would walk through it. Now, by the way, this is how we deal with people who wrong us. This is how we deal with people who owe us. What we say is this. We say, you failed me. Now, you better promise to never do this again because if you do, I will cut you out of my life. That's what you're saying. We're cutting a deal. Now, if that's what God intended, it would never have helped Abram. It wouldn't have helped him at all because Abram already knew he couldn't live up to his side. He already knew he couldn't pull through. He was doubting himself before he even entered this contract, before he even entered this relationship. It was one of the barriers to trusting God. But that's not what happens here. What happens? It's one of the most beautiful things in the entire Bible. I mean, if you've never heard this passage, it should change your view of God. In verse 12, the sun sets, so there's darkness. And Abram falls into a deep sleep. The text says, a dreadful darkness. It's literally, in Hebrew, a thick terror came over Abram. In other words, along with the physical darkness of the sun setting came a spiritual darkness, a terror that came over Abram. Why a terror? Because Abram was alone and he's struggling with God. He's struggling with himself. He's doubting both. And he's on the ground, and now this thick 
Billowing smoke appears and and he's choking and he's struggling. And God comes to Abram here in verses 13 to 20. He begins to make promises to Abram. God is establishing a covenant with Abram. Abram is struggling with the reality of God. Is God for real? Abram is struggling with the heavy, heavy significance of God, the weight of God. Is God trustworthy? Can I trust in what God is promising? But then in verse 17, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appears and passes between the pieces. Now, what is that? Scholars say that this is a cloud-like smoke, a billowing smoke, and, and, a, and a blazing torch that's like lightning. It's more like lightning. But think about this. Lightning just flashes and it's gone. Even a torch starts, it blazes and kind of dims over time. But the text says here that this is a blazing torch. The actual phrase, it's like a sustaining torch that holds its form, blazing, appears, and starts to pass in between the pieces as if somebody is walking in between the pieces on their own. What is it? It's not smoke. It's not lightning. These are the emblems of God's physical presence. These are the emblems of God's glory presence, the actual presence of God, the real reality of God. It's what scholars call theophany. That same smoke, that same lightning, that same fire appeared again on Mount Sinai with Moses. That's the terror, the presence of God. I mean, fire is beautiful. Fire is brilliant. We all have fire pits. We've all been the fire pits. We've all been the campfires at some point in our lives. We know that the fire, especially in the darkness, is beautiful, it's brilliant, it's warm. But if you get too close to the fire, the closer you get, you start to experience and feel the consuming presence of that fire. That beauty becomes too beautiful. That brilliance becomes too brilliant. If you get too close, you get consumed. That's why God often appears in fire. Why? Because God's presence consumes. Why? It's not because he's angry per se. His beauty is so brilliant. His brilliance is so brilliant that if you come too close, it wipes you out. It consumes. And there in that brilliance, in that presence, God makes an oath to Abram, a promise And as God is walking through these pieces, he says this, this is a blood oath. Abram, I am putting my life on the line. Abram, I'm putting my reputation, my name, my character on the line. If I don't live up to my oath, may I become like these animals, torn up. May my life be cut off. May I experience the curse. That's an amazing admission. If you think about it, this is absolutely remarkable for several reasons. One, ancient contracts, they favor the stronger party. It's usually the weaker party that has to be the one bearing the bulk of the responsibility. They're the ones who have to pull through. And so if you think about it, these ancient contracts favoring the stronger party here, Abram's the weaker person. He's the weaker party. He's the doubter, but he's the one that's favored. It's God that walks through. God is walking through. The king is walking through. The creator of the universe, the sovereign God, the eternal God walks through the pieces. That means in a sense, God chose. God chose to be weaker. Look at the humility of God. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the gentleness of God. Now, 
trustworthiness comes in degrees. For those of you parents, you know when you're raising children, it's like every five minutes, they're doing something, right? They're doing something and they're violating whatever promise they made to you five minutes ago. Cut it out, stop. You're gonna stop because if you don't, right? You're establishing a covenant with this child. And the child says, no, no, I, I won't do it anymore. I promise I won't do it anymore. Five minutes later, what are they doing? They're doing it. They're violating the promise. Over and over and over, they're violating the promise. Their word is not that strong. But then you have a peer. When a peer, depending on the degree of relationship with you, when a peer makes a promise to you, depending on the nature of that relationship, you find them trustworthy. You say, you know, I can trust this person. Their word is their bond, especially in relationship to me. When you're a child and your parent, your mother or father makes a promise to you, oh, you trust your mother, you trust your father. As you grow in your career, one day your vice president or the CEO actually comes to you and says, look, I have my eyes on you. I need you to stay here. I want you to know that you are held in a very special group of people that I am keeping and I want to raise and nurture to lead. So I want you to know that you're going to be okay here. No matter what kind of downturns come, no matter what kind of recessions we're in, people could be getting laid off. I want you to know you belong with me. And I, one day you're going to be with me. You're not going to just be like, thanks, bro, and like walk away. No one ever does that. You know what you're going to do? You're going to go out there. You're going to tell all your friends and all because you believe you made it. The CEO of this firm is thinking about me. But this is the creator of the universe. This is a sustainer of the universe. You know why his word is so important? He created the world with his word. Let there be light. For him to go back on his word, yeah, that means that's, that's his character on the line. That's his name on the line. That's his reputation on the line. But the thing is, he created the, word with his, the world with his word. This is the creator, the governor, the sustainer of the universe. To go back on his word is to have the world implode on itself. That's the end of everything that we know. But then he comes to you and says, I want you to know that my eyes are on you. You are mine forever. Don't worry. You are my child. I will never let you go. And yet we doubt. It doesn't excite us. Look at the humility of God. The patience of God in our doubts. The love of God. What's he saying? Abram, if I don't deliver on my promises, may my immortality become mortality. May my infiniteness become finite. May my immutability become mutable. May it become changeable. May I be cut off. May I be torn apart. May I die. That's God going to great lengths. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. Going to great lengths to answer to Abram's first barrier of trusting him. Abram's thinking, how do I know that God's going to pull through? And God promises by showing him visibly by establishing a covenant in a way, in a language that he can understand. He says, I am putting my own life on the line. You can trust God. 
you can trust his word. God passes through the pieces and then he makes an oath. That's verse 17. And then verse 18, the covenant is complete. Abram never walks through himself. And this addresses the second barrier to trusting God. How do I know that I'm going to be good enough? What if I fail? What if I violate the covenant? Is God going to reject me? Is it over? And God answers Abram. One hand, he says, if I don't pull through, may I be cursed. If I don't pull through, Abram, if I violate the covenant, may I be torn up, torn asunder, cut off. But because only God walks through, what is that happening? What is, what's going on there? He's choosing to absorb all the risk himself. He's saying, I'm going to absorb the risk of your failures, your violations, your sins. Even if you, Abram, even if you do not pull through, I will still bless you. I will pay the penalty if I am not faithful to my promises, but I will still pay the penalty if you were not faithful either. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is patient. But it's unconditional. Our faithfulness cannot earn it. Our faithfulness did not earn it. Our faithfulness had nothing to do with it. And there is the full assurance There is the comfort that Abram needed all of his life. There is the assurance and the validation and the comfort that he could never have imagined. I mean, he's probably perplexed. How is it possible that God can make this promise? God can't just ignore my unfaithfulness, right? He's a just God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. He must have been perplexed. How do you reconcile the justice of God in our unfaithfulness with the faithfulness of God in his promise. How do you reconcile those things? He must have been perplexed, but we don't have to be perplexed. You know why? Because we know the fuller story. Centuries later, the immortal did become mortal. The infinite did become finite. The high king, the creator and sustainer of the universe became a baby. You know what Advent is? It's one of the reasons why we observe and celebrate Advent. Because the high king became vulnerable. The high king became weak. The high king became killable. He became a baby. He didn't come on a throne. He came in a manger. He was birthed in darkness. He was birthed alone, rejected by the world around him. He became killable and vulnerable. God was literally putting his own life on the line. And years later, decades later at Gethsemane, Jesus Christ, now a full-grown man, in the darkness again. Now he's in the darkness. And now a terror comes over Jesus, just like it did for Abram. Why? Jesus was alone. And here he is now. Like Abram, he's struggling with God's promise to redeem the world. And he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Why? Because the terror of the wrath of God was beginning to fall on Jesus He was starting to sense a glimpse. He was staring down the abyss, knowing what would happen to him the next day. He was staring down the abyss. And he's starting to see and experience the terror of the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is struggling with the weight of the glory of God. He's struggling with the heavy significance of God. And it's overwhelming so much that he says, let this cup pass from me. You know what that cup is? The cup represents the cup of God's wrath. He says, let the cup of God's wrath, let it pass from me. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. You know what he's saying there? I trust you. 
In the midst of my suffering, I trust you. You are good for it. You are still faithful. Jesus Christ trusts in the goodness and faithfulness of God. And then he responds, I'll be good for it too. I will be faithful. I, I will uphold my part of the covenant. And so Jesus upholds the covenant. He says, even if it comes at my cost, I'm going to do it. And it does come at his cost. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus Christ is on the cross. And there's another darkness that comes over the land physically. What's happening? Along with the physical darkness, now the ultimate terror, the ultimate reality, Jesus is bearing the full weight of the wrath of God on the cross as a penalty for our sins. And there he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abram, he's experiencing the terror of God's presence, that blazing fire, that torch that sustains and runs through those pieces. But the presence of God eventually becomes a comfort for Abram. It becomes a comfort for us. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ experiences the ultimate terror of God's absence. He gets the blazing fire of God's wrath. He gets the full force of the fiery wrath of God and he's struggling and he's choking on the cross and he's dying and he's bleeding. Jesus Christ, the greater Abram, who perfectly obeyed, he was perfectly faithful. He keeps the covenant all the way. Never once did he doubt God's love. Never once did he doubt God's faithfulness or his goodness. Even as God was abandoning him on the cross. Do you know that while he was on the cross, he was reciting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read that Psalm, it is a testament to the faithfulness of God that satisfies the psalmist because of his goodness and faithfulness. So even as being, he's being abandoned, he's reflecting and trusting in God's word. On the cross, the immortal becomes mortal. The infinite becomes finite. Although he delivered on every promise, Jesus' body is being torn apart on the cross and he's bleeding and he's dying. And now as God departs from him, his soul is being torn apart. The Trinity, in a sense, is being ripped apart. His heart is being ripped apart because God has abandoned him. Literally, he's experiencing the curse. He's experiencing hell. What is hell? Hell is separation from God. And yet, to the end, Jesus Christ remains faithful. Why? so that the justice of God will be satisfied while the love of God would also be satisfied. So Jesus Christ receives God's justice and God's wrath so that we could receive God's love and God's mercy. Jesus Christ receives the absence of God, experiences the absence of God. Why? So that we can experience the presence of God. Jesus Christ, his life is being ripped apart. Why? So that our lives can heal. Our lives can be made whole. Look to the cross and you will see the trustworthy faithfulness of God in Jesus. God is faithful. There are people in this room, maybe it's for a short period of time, maybe it's momentary, maybe it's a sustained period of time. There's just a lot of darkness. And, and you're just struggling with God. And when you hear words of God's promise or his provision, you just struggle with that. I mean, is God really for me? How come I haven't experienced that? Why, where is, how is God for me? And you're struggling. Some of us, we're struggling with more uh, earthly things, but that makes you question. It makes you doubt God, betrayal, or unfulfilled longings. 
You know, my wife and I, for years, we struggled to have children. For years, we struggled to have children. And, and then she got, she got pregnant. We had triplets on the way. And then she lost all three babies at once. And then the second time, she gets pregnant again. And then we lost that child. Two more times, four times over, my wife and I just suffered through miscarriages. I mean, there's just tears and, and we're just, we're just, I mean, it, and it got progressively worse. I mean, um, you know, women, you understand the DNC. I mean, like when you have a miscarriage and it gets past a certain point in time, you have to actually go in the process of almost having a birth, except it's lifeless. About the third time, my wife, you know, we just both fell. Once we heard, we came back. We, it was just a quiet drive home. We just collapsed on our beds and we slept for a long time. It was like the darkness and the terror, you know. After a long nap, my wife wakes up and she says to me, let's not doubt the faithfulness of God here. Let's not doubt God now. This is momentary. There's got to be a reason for this. We may not even know the reason for this. But... God has been so faithful. Look at Jesus. God has been faithful in Christ. Look at all the things that we've experienced and received. God has been so faithful. Let's not start questioning God now. If God is the God of love, if God is all powerful, and yet he still doesn't answer our prayers, then he must be all wise and have a wisdom that we don't have. But he is faithful. How do you trust that? Look to the cross. Don't look at your present emptiness. Look at the presence of God. Look to the cross. Jesus Christ put his name on the line. Jesus Christ put his life on the line so that you can trust with ultimate promise. So go to the Lord with your doubts. But you, you can't, don't just stay there. You gotta pray, help me in my unbelief. And you will experience the great assurance of the gospel in a way that shapes you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, he confirmed it with an oath. We have this oath as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. You can trust in God's word. He's good for it. Let's pray.